Are we facing Apocalypse Cow? McDonald's is launching a plant-based McPlant burger. Singapore is approving lab-grown meat for human consumption. Is this the end of meat from livestock? My name is Mike Von Masso, and this is the Food Focus Podcast. In this episode, I talked to Dana McCauley, food innovator and trend tracker about the future of meat. Is meat now a special occasion meal, or are we just seeing a more diversification in our protein consumption? We get sidetracked once or twice on other interesting topics, but our focus in this discussion is on meat. As always, I found my conversation with Dana informative and entertaining. I'm sure you will too. Before I get to the conversation with Dana, I want to thank you again for listening. If this is your first time listening, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our audience continues to grow and we are gratified by it. If you enjoy the podcast, give us a review anywhere you get your podcasts. If you have an idea for an episode, send us a note at foodfocus at uoguelph.ca, uoguelph.ca, and we will consider it. Now, without further delay, here's my conversation with Dana. Well, Dana, thanks for taking the time to come chat with me again. I always enjoy our conversations. So today I'd like to ask, we're seeing McDonald's come back into, after leaving, coming back into the uh, plant-based burger. In the last week, we've also seen uh, Singapore approve cellular meat for human consumption. With all of these sorts of new developments, are we facing apocalypse cow? Is is this the end of meat? Well, you know what? It's not necessarily the end of meat. It's definitely the emergence of more variety and more choice. And who knows? I mean, right now, I think, uh, you know, my, my eating habits, uh, you know, change very gradually when I think back over the my adult life. So I don't think we're going to, to just go from meat, veg, and potato to uh, all plant-based or, or technically derived meat uh, anytime in the near future. But I think over time that, uh, yeah, it will take up more and more of uh, people's shopping lists and pantry uh, stock. Well, it's, it's interesting that you started with the point that it's people like you and I who are perhaps eating less meat rather than rather than the vegans or the vegetarians who are forgoing meat entirely. I, I tend to agree with you, and I often say, those of you who are in the getting people to eat more meat business are taking your eye off the ball. And, and in fact, it's probably not the small plus or minus a couple of percentage points around 5% uh, of people who are forgoing meat entirely. It is the other 95% plus or minus who are eating less meat that are having much more significant impact on the consumption of meat and any long-term downward trends in meat consumption. You're so right. And, uh, you know, I mean, a tiny little focus group of one of my dearest friends who uh, has been a vegetarian since she and I met in our teens, she has zero interest in any of these, these Beyond Burgers and cellular meat because she finds the whole idea of eating an animal revolting and, and doesn't ever want to have anything that tastes like that or looks like that on her plate. So it is definitely, I, I think, you know, we've got those Gen Zs, the uh, early 20s, late teens types who are very focused on sustainability and ethics and social justice. And uh, I think they are uh, a group that as they move into 
having families and more buying power will, you know, influence this trend and, and adopt these kinds of products more often. And then, yeah, it's, it's folks who are, you know, getting into those years where the doctor starts saying, oh, you know, you're gaining weight. Oh, you've got to watch your, you know, your cardiovascular health. And, and, and I think, uh, you know, they're, they don't want, they want to have their cake and eat it too, right? They, they don't, maybe don't want uh, to give up meat, but uh, those are definitely the people I see buying those blended products, the ones that are, you know, meat plus mushroom type uh, burgers and things like that so that they, they can ease into being compliant with their health uh, directions. It's interesting. You raised a couple of interesting points there. One of the things that I think we forget much too easily is how heterogeneous or how different consumers are. You you talked about your your sample of one, <laughs> your vegetarian or vegan friend who has no interest. I did. I recorded a podcast episode with a group of. We actually did two episodes with a group of five or six vegans. And the interest in these products was variable. Ooh. Some people, depending on their motivation, and, and they're not all the same either, depending on their motivation, depending on a variety of things, some of them had a ton of appeal or, or, or were really interested in the Impossible Burger or Beyond Beef, probably not so much cellular proteins where, where we're using the cells uh, from animals to produce them. But so some of them were really interested and thought it was a, a, a cool indulgence and others didn't. And this, this variety in consumers, to me, makes the food industry so profoundly interesting right now, but also profoundly challenging. I look at, again, a small sample of one, uh, my 25-year-old son, who is an avowed uh, omnivore. He, he loves to eat meat and will continue to eat meat. But he regularly buys and is one of the only people I know, frankly, who buys Beyond Meat in the grocery store and cooks with it just as an alternative. Interesting. Yeah, so, so I think we've got this sort of really diverse consumer group and understanding why different products have appealed to them and why individuals choose is incredibly complex. It is. And that's what, you know, I come from, you know, the food marketing world and, you know, it's so much more difficult now uh, to do positioning for any kind of product, whether it happens to be, you know, positioned as plant-based or, you know, a, a meat alternative, because there is so much more voice for individual you know, taste and things of that nature. And uh, when I work with entrepreneurs, both at the University of Guelph and other capacities, they get very befuddled on, on the messaging they get from consumers because of social media and the access you have. It used to be we'd have a focus group, uh, you know, run them for three nights on a weeknight in a city like Toronto or Calgary and get you know, those 15, 20 people that we talked to became the bulk of the voice that we used to position products against. And somehow we sold things and grew businesses by only considering those small, small number of perspectives. But it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, the amount of choice. And if you think about how not just grocery stores generally, but the meat section, the dairy section, the pizza aisle. Like now there's all these positionings against very niche consumers, which is um, it's, it's fascinating, but it, it makes the... It makes the whole business so much more complex from 
an analyst side like you know yours to you know the marketer and and sometimes the consumer like i gotta say the shampoo and toothpaste aisles overwhelmed me i just i just i just want to have clean hair and teeth i've said the exact same thing is is what we've we've uh, grocery stores have to really strike the balance at giving enough choice to appeal to a broad enough base of consumers while not overwhelming the consumers that do walk in with so much choice that they're unable to find uh, their products. And while it's probably going in a direction that's different than where we started, I, I think we will eventually see as much I mean, we'll see a reemergence of specialty grocery stores. Uh, restaurants can do it already, but a reemergence of specialty grocery stores and the big mainline grocery retailers will start to have more customer-oriented sections rather than product-oriented sections. So they'll have to stop with the objective of trying to get us to walk down every aisle and focus on the objective of getting us into the store and saying this section is what appeals to you and there may be some stuff over here. So, And we're seeing it to a degree in, in some of the grocery stores where there's the health food section where you'll see cereal that isn't in the cereal aisle. And some stores have the quote-unquote international section. So as we help people who just want clean teeth and clean hair more easily find the products that they're looking for. But, you know, those transitions are so they're so painful. And, and the retailers, they take the risk of, at least in the short term, until they train consumers about the change, losing some of the basket ring size. I, 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 an example in point, um, I used to live in Richmond Hill, and uh, I was kind of a devoted Blanco shopper, and as gluten-free grew in importance to consumers, they moved my favorite crackers from the cracker aisle to the gluten-free aisle. I thought they'd been discontinued for almost two months, and it, but then finally I went to the gluten-free for some reason. I think I was doing research, and I'm like, they're my crackers, and, and the, so it was... <laughs> So it's, 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 there's always friction, you know, all these changes are, uh, you know, I, um, I, I was, you know, will be gone about not having my favorite crackers and they didn't have uh, my cracker sales for, for weeks. Yep. It's important to strike the right balance. So going back to meat then, I think this, this discussion, this tangent we went off of, worthwhile and interesting as always, it really, I think, highlights one of the challenges in that protein segment is, you know, if you are the incumbent, the commodity incumbent, whether it's beef, chicken, or pork, anything new feels like a threat. And, and we've seen the industry to a significant degree sort of get into a, a bunker mentality. We've got to defend, or, you know, we have to be aggressive against all of these. And it's a bit like playing whack-a-mole because... They're getting, it's, it's almost death by a thousand cuts rather than sort of retrenching and saying, who is, and I had this discussion with, uh, with a beef organization just two weeks ago is not saying who is our enemy, but who is our core customer? Who is going to continue to buy beef or pork or chicken or lamb or whatever it is? And why are they buying it? and reinforce those messages. You're not going to, as we get a more diverse consumer base, particularly as we get people like us who are who are lucky enough to be able to take advantage of all these choices. It's the variety in our diets is is amazing and it's also exciting and it's 
you know, I, I was just thinking as I opened the fridge today, I'm just tired of eating the same lunch every day and I'm spoiled because I don't eat exactly the same lunch every day. And so one of the things I think that, that, that these meat marketers need to think about is that the people who are leaving or the people who are eating less meat aren't necessarily disliking your product, although some are. They are just looking for variety, and that's a different kind of challenge. Totally. And, you know, somebody who you probably have crossed paths with as well, Adam Grogan, he's now the president of Lightlife, which is part of, uh, of Maple Leaf. And before that, he was the, I believe, SVP of Marketing or Innovation. And he and I were on a uh, on the Agenda TVO's show um, talking about the plant-based trend. This is like, oh, like a year and a half ago together. And we had a great conversation in the green room. And he explained to me about how he had convinced the executive leadership team at Maple Leaf to pivot from being a meat company to being a protein company. And his insights were exactly what you just said. So there are business people who get that. Unfortunately, that, that flexibility and thinking and that empathy for the consumer seems to be less common among the commodity groups. And I, and I think it's, again, because, yeah, they are fearful of, of losing their share. And who knows, maybe what we really need is a consortium that brings together all of those voices and they, they just learn how to talk more generally about protein and center of plate and that kind of thing. And, and, uh, but that, that's a difficult transition because of the way they're funded and the way they're already factioned out, don't you think? I was struck by your terminology, and it's the terminology that everyone uses, is we call them commodity groups. And, and I think part of the challenge that they've had as organizations is they've thought of themselves as commodity organizations, and, and they haven't always embraced, and this is not just true of the livestock industries, they haven't always embraced that the value of differentiation for different customers. And so, you know, when organic came along, there was friction between quote unquote conventional producers and now with beef grass fed and, you know, it doesn't mean one product, one system is bad or another system. It's good. It's just that different customers like different things. And uh, if we could get them to say, we're not a commodity group. We are a group that is focused on cattle or pork or chicken and recognize that there are different ways and different characteristics. It's not just how we produce, but it could be different characteristics, even as we as we improve genomic technology and understand the differences between animals and the attributes that may make them appealing to, to different customer segments. Part of that will be getting out of this commodity thinking, I think. Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're right. And you're reminding me of years ago when I was in chef school, I read um, an article by the food writer Corby Cummer. And I've always remembered it because, you know, it was about pasta. And he made this great analogy about, you know, that, that you know, there's no good or bad between dry or fresh pasta. It's, if you use an analogy, you know, one is like silk and the other is like cashmere. And you're like, hey, yeah, that's right. So, you know, you, you don't have just one pair of pants. You've got, you know, all different styles and colors and fabrics. And and that's a, a good analogy. Uh, fashion and um, seems to have figured that out, that one fashion label can can have many, many different tiers and many different iterations and and 
the same customer for, for all of them. It's exactly right. And it gets back to, I think, another one of my pet peeves is when I hear farmers call themselves producers, I think it narrows their focus a little bit. It says, this is what I produce. And and they need to think of themselves more as managers and say, what is it that my market wants and leverage their resources to produce that. But if I think more broadly from a perspective of a manager, I'm much more likely to be flexible and more responsive to what consumers are looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I know from when I used to work with food entrepreneurs, I partnered a lot with the uh, OAFVGC, I think it is, out by Colburn, Ontario, you know, where the Big Apple is which was built as a place for farmers to create value-added products. But their customers became food entrepreneurs. It, there, there was, it was a very difficult shift for, you know, what, people who are very sophisticated business people, as you know, farmers have to have many, many, um, you know, well-developed skills to be successful. But yet having them click over to doing value-added products, they never quite cracked that um, at that center uh, in the time that I was working with them, they seemed to have become more of like a pass-off spot where the apple growers would drop off the apples and then an entrepreneur would come in and, and figure out what to do with them. It's interesting. So we've got a mindset change. As we get towards the end of our time today, let's take it back to meat versus plant-based proteins. It's interesting to me, you know, I get asked, is meat going to be gone? And I say, meat's not going to be gone, not in my lifetime. I think we will continue to see people eat a wider variety of proteins. And that will end, when you get to my age, also smaller portions of proteins. And, and that's likely true as Canada as a population and North America as a population gets older the average portion that we eat is getting smaller of these proteins, that meat will continue to go down as a share of the food dollar in North American consumers' baskets, but it's not going to go away in our lifetime. Is that your perspective, or, or can you see within our lifetime the end of meat? Well, I don't see the end of meat. I agree it's going to diminish. I think on a slightly longer time frame, though, like, say, you know, a hundred years, you know, and I think back to the way people ate in the Edwardian period, which is almost exactly a hundred years ago now, and how we eat now, it's changed so significantly. And I do think that meat will, as the price of meat goes up and uh, land becomes more scarce and et cetera, et cetera, and the cost of these newer products, you know, is that they play out the investment in the science and technology and the promotion of these new disruptive categories. As they recoup those investments and they become more competitive with meat uh, and maybe even cheaper, I think that meat will become more of a sometimes food. You know, the idea of the uh, Sunday roast will maybe become the monthly roast or turkey at Christmas and, uh, and, and Thanksgiving will, will be special. You know, I, I always uh, love this, um, you know, it used to be that... Uh, if you lived in the northern part of France, near Riem, like, you know, champagne was just the same as any other glass of wine. It just happened to have bubbles in it. But even in a place like France now, champagne is still, uh, is now a, a celebratory drink and a sometimes drink. So, you know, I think uh, of, of meat moving into into that, that special kind of an era. My grandmothers, both of them, 
they make the cake almost every day for dessert. And now, you know, I bake a cake two or three times a year. So that's, you know, that's the way habits tend to tend to change from, you know, a couple of generations to a couple of generations. And that's interesting. I tend to agree with a lot a lot of what you say and maybe it's because I've maybe I'm showing my own personal bias here that I'm not ready to let let go of my Sunday roast or my <laughs> or my burger or my burger just yet. Maybe I'm going down kicking and screaming. Are, are you saying that these other ones, sort of, that like the plant-based or the cellular egg, take over, or that everything becomes a sometimes food because we have so much diversity in our diet? Well, that's another way of phrasing it, isn't it? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's interesting. I just envision if trends continue, that meat is going to become out of like reach for for most people like already i know consumers and and professionals you know who were like oh gosh yeah you know steak well that's you know that's that's not something we you know we have very often because it's very expensive so i'm imagining that that uh, that the inputs to, to farming are not going to get less expensive and that we will you know that, that we will choose what will longer term become less expensive you know if you can manufacture something you can get all those great contribution margin benefits that help you to to, to reduce your prices over time so I, I think that there'll be all you know for sure more variety uh certainly when i grew up you know even spaghetti was considered sort of an ethnic meal now of course uh pasta is in high rotation in most canadian households so there's there's that but i i, I think that uh yeah i think the the meat will become inevitably expensive for, for most folks. And that's interesting because I noted and I wrote in my notes here as, as you talked earlier about these blended products. And I've talked about those blended products to, I, I think you and I were on the same interview uh, circuit yes. uh, a couple <laughs> of weeks ago, which led me to call you up and say, would you have this conversation with me? And I said, well, I think one of the things we'll see are more of these blended products, which will let people continue to have that taste and mouthfeel of, of the meat they love. And whether it's from a perceived environmental benefit or a health benefit, whether it's a burger that is part mushroom or a blended Beyond Meat and beef burger or, or whatever, that some of these blended products may let people have the best of both worlds. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that is, you know, it's that transitional thing. It's like you're spring or your fall jacket, right? You're, uh, you're, you're not quite ready for, for your parka. Uh, and, um, uh, and I could certainly think the consumer appeal is there. I know from my years as a marketer that anytime I did consumer research on a product, we usually saw like the same four drivers for consumers. Taste was always near the top. If it was a family product, um, it was the second one was always acceptance. Like, can I buy it and have everybody eat it? And then, you know, cost and health came, always came in in the third or fourth, depending on the, the actual product and category. So the blended products, you know, have that taste and acceptance, like those top two boxes just tick, tick, right? Because chances are, you know, if you have a carnivore in your household, uh, they will accept something that's partially uh, diluted with, with something else that tastes delicious like a mushroom uh, before they'll go for something, 
completely new and different. You might even be able to sneak it by them. Yes, yes, in that uh, Jessica Simpson <laughs> vegetables uh, kind of a way. <laughs> Just as we wrap up, I'm going to tell you, we're having a beef stir fry at our house for dinner tonight. Uh, So there's still beef, although one member of our household is not a red meat eater. What's for dinner at the Macaulay household tonight? Well, we are, uh, it's Friday, and my husband and I were uh, talking about, you know, being a little bit naughty since we can't go out. So I have leftover brisket that I made earlier in the week, an oven barbecue brisket. And so we're going to make nachos topped with uh, shredded brisket. So it's going to be um, very indulgent and not very heart healthy, but I've been thinking about it all day. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, again, a small sample, Dana, but uh, but evidence that beef isn't dead yet. It's not. No, no. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not going out of style uh, today, that's for sure. <laughs> Good. Well, thanks very much for taking the time, and uh, I look forward to chatting again. Yeah, and hopefully we can do it in person in the future. It's, uh, it's a, I miss uh, our serendipitous chats. Yeah, exactly right. So enjoy the nachos and have a great weekend. Thank you. You too, Mike. As we wrap up another episode, I want to take a moment to thank Max Graham. We get to have the interesting discussions, and he does the hard work to make us sound good. I also want to thank Zach Von Massow for the original music that we use in the podcast. Check out foodfocusguelph.ca. We have a blog that is updated regularly, and our Food Focus trend report as well. You can contact us through the website or at foodfocus at uoguelph.ca if you have any questions or suggestions. We appreciate our audience and your recommendation. It helps us grow. If you are so inclined, give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews move us up the ladder and help others find us. That's it for now. Thanks again for listening and stay in touch.